Good morning and happy Friday to each and every one of you in our local and surrounding communities. My name is Barbara Chandler and I am the host of Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. The Leadership Lounge has been created as a way that we get to speak directly to community historians, grassroots organizers, local artists, and small business owners. We are here every Friday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. And you can listen to us on WPRK.org. And we are now on Spotify as well as iTunes. This Friday, we continue to bring to you the best in our community. We have with us community historian Mike Thomas of Deland African American Museum. We have with us Felicia Benzo, community organizer and founder of Catalyst Global Youth Initiative Incorporated. We also have with us our local artist spotlight with Andrew Brown. You're going to hear Andrew Brown chatted up a bit with Dr. Vicki Van Hurley on being a local artist and transitioning that into a business. And for our small business spotlight, we're going to speak to the dynamic duo John and Albert Richards with Posh Rock Tennis Foundation. So right now we're going to introduce to you, we're going to bring on Mike Brown from Deland. Mike, welcome to our seat and our table. How are you today? I'm doing good, Barbara. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Mike, of course, community history, local African-American history is very near and dear to us. This is where we learn more about our local communities and how we connect to them directly. So tell us about the African-American history of Deland. When was the city or the African-American community started in Deland? Okay. There was a man named uh, Henry Edison Deland who came here in Deland in 1882. He came from New York and he fell in love with the oranges and the orange trees here in Deland. So eventually he liked it so much he decided to move here. And uh, he brought his wife, uh, Helen, I mean, he brought his wife, Miss um, Deland, and his daughter, Helen. Now, what a lot of people don't know about uh, Henry Deland is that he founded the land and also Lake Helen, which is named after his daughter. Okay. And um, the city was officially named uh, the land in 1882. So that's where it's got, it pretty much got its start. Before it was named the land, it used to be called Persimmon Hollow. Persimmons Hollow, okay. Right. Uh-huh. And where did that name Persimmons Hollow come from? Do you know? Well, you know, over in the land, over here in the land, they had quite a few persimmon trees. And there were so many that they decided to, uh, they came up with the name persimmon and just added persimmon hollow to it. I see. Yeah. In fact, and also he he, uh, started uh, Stetson University. It used to be the land academy until John B. Stetson came here. And he took over in 1887 to 1889. And uh, they changed the name to Stetson from a man named John B. Stetson. 
I see. I see. So when did the first African-American settlers come into the land? Well, the first, uh, as, as far as I can go back, the oldest person that settled in the greater area of the land was a man, a man named Reuben Marsh, who brought two slaves with him. Now, that's the oldest that I know of black people being in the land. But uh, it goes back. Um, from African-Americans were segregated. It sounds the same as in many other communities. We definitely had economic empowerment because of segregation, due to segregation, where we could only do business amongst ourselves, which really benefited us because it meant that the dollar stayed within the community. What about a church? What about churches or the religious life in the land? What was that like? Well, you know, black people have always been religious people, and we had almost a, a church on almost every corner. Correct. Uh, yeah, and uh, but the whole community back in, in that time, pretty much people were very religious over a period of time. You know, a lot of people 
of uh, they don't come to church as much. But on Easter Sunday, it was almost guaranteed that you're going to have a new suit, a new dress. Mm-hmm. Everybody dressed up to go to uh, go to church. So the churches all had, uh, in fact, they had close relationship, even though there were different denominations. But a lot of the churches would get together when it was time to vote. And they would get bands and these um, megaphones and drive through the city. And these are the churches that encourage people to go out and vote. I see. So the churches played a, a, a very big part in the land. Ah, very nice. Very nice. Now, what about in many of our communities locally in Winter Park, in downtown Orlando, uh, in Winter Park, we have seen gentrification. We are seeing it in Orlando and how it's reshaping our communities, uh, removal and eviction of the residents. Has Delan experienced that? Is that uh, something that is happening currently? Has it happened? Where is the land in uh, gentrification as it applies in many other African-American communities today? Well, what's happening in the land, we had uh, quite a few nightclubs here. And once those nightclubs closed down, they were closed for years. But you have white whites coming in now buying up those properties. Uh, you know, once we had integration, most of the small businesses faded away because blacks were able to go out in different areas. I mean, downtown and and buy stuff like that when they used to couldn't. But there's a lot of buying up property in the black community now. Uh, like there's a place called La Grace. Some whites bought that. Uh, Rock and Palace. Some people bought that. At one time, the police department had headquarters down in the main area of Spring Hill. Because then there was a little bit of crime down there, but now they own that area. So it's slowly but surely. It's, it's creeping up in the land, especially on Spring Hill. You are seeing all it. Over the country, especially in Orlando. Right, you are seeing it. So with all this buying up, as you mentioned, you mentioned a lot of the businesses are being bought up. What about homes? What about the, the residents' homes? Are we seeing the same thing as well? Oh, yes. You see many, many white people now in the black community. And you, know, you also see a lot of uh, Hispanics in the community. So even the area where I live, I live on the outskirts of the land on Bearson Road. And uh, for the first time, I've got white neighbors on the next, well, on the next street over. And then right across the street, a couple of houses down, there's some whites that live there. So pretty much the area that I'm living in is starting to, to integrate. It's starting but, you know, to. Have, yeah, you have Hispanics moving in, and plus you have white people moving in these areas also. Okay. So then we 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 realize in a lot of the African American communities we are starting to see other cultures come in. Uh are we also starting to see where they are knocking down or tearing down the older homes and building the bigger what we call in uh Winter Park these um these uh mansions. Are you seeing the structures or the homes change? Or are they staying true to the integrity of the community that was there prior? Not in the immediate community, but there are certain sections that's growing up in my area where they've got housing complexes with these big, nice, nice homes now. Oh, I see. So, yeah, and also in the land, you know, the land is growing by leaps and bounds now. <laughs> so you have a lot of housing complexes where, you know, we had to live. The black homes that we used to have back in the day 
Okay, so it's it's standard. It's standard now where everything, it has become, pardon me, it has become the standard. Once again, we're seeing gentrification where developers, they come in, uh, they, they change the landscape or the integrity of the community and the people who are living there, once again, not necessarily can they afford to live there and not necessarily do they want the uh, the integrity or the structures of their home to experience so much of this overdevelopment. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, for me, I look at it as, in fact, my, my cousin and I were talking the other day how it's actually building up in our area. And, and pretty much, for me, that's good on property taxes because I live in a real nice neighborhood. Okay. So so the more diversity you have in uh, ethnic groups moving in this area, the whole area, I think, uh, raises the value of the properties that surround us. But can everyone afford that? Can everyone afford the property taxes? What about those who are on fixed incomes? Uh, well, you know, everybody, believe it or not, in this area is doing pretty good. Okay. So I'm, and they've been there for years. And I'm sure if the property taxes, you know, go up, uh, hopefully they can adjust to paying those, those taxes. If they're doing this building and, and the property taxes are too high for, the, for people that's living there, uh, maybe some people will move out, but I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. 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 Well, I look forward to talking back to you in a couple of years around this particular subject, <laughs> because again, what we have seen is because of the increase in, in taxes, uh, property taxes, that drives a lot of people out. But we, you and I will definitely meet back. But kind of tell us, I have been to the museum on several occasions. Uh, Delanza African American Museum is definitely one of my favorites. Uh, so give our listeners who have not been, who have not been able to visit, and now due to COVID, um, you all are still closed. Tell us some of the artifacts and, and what's inside of the actual museum. Okay, we have some beautiful art in the museum. Uh, we have tons of books on African and African, and African American history. We have carvings, we have statues, we have shields, we have spears, we have uh, a statue of uh, Charles Bailey, who was one of Tuskegee Airmen. We have a big, nice picture of uh, uh, the uh, Mustang, P-51 Mustang, that he had 66 Tuskegee Airmen signed us in the museum. We have books for sale, we have jewelry for sale. We have T-shirts for sale in the museum. But once you walk in, you walk into Africa. Wow. Because we, yeah, we've got plenty of statues. Of, in fact, some of the stuff that's in the museum, some of those just one thing item is almost like fifteen to $20,000. Wow, wow. And when was the African American uh, Museum of the Land started? I don't know the exact date, but I know it's been here at least 12 years. Oh, very nice. Very nice. And yeah. who were the founders? Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. Nice. In fact, I had a, I passed by the museum. I was living in Daytona at the time, and I just happened to see the museum. And I stopped by and knocked on the door, and I talked with Ms. Johnson. At the time, she was the director, but eventually she uh, gave it up, and Mary Allen took over about 11, 
years ago. Oh, excellent, and, excellent. And she's been doing an excellent job giving festivals and jazz shows and different plays and poetry at the museum. But mm. Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, Miss Johnson pretty much is the one that started the museum. And when I passed by, I've been connected with the museum for about seven years because I'm, I'm just so amazed at it, you know? Right, right, right. Wow, this is wonderful. Um, how can someone get in touch with your organization if they would like to, I, I'm not sure if you're doing scheduled tours or just if they would like to find out more information, if they would like to contact you, how do we get in touch with you and how can we better support you? Okay, well, let me give you the address of uh, the museum. It's uh, 325 South Clara Avenue in the land, Florida, and the phone number is 386-736-4004. And just ask for Mary Ellen, she'll probably wind up answering the phone or her assistant. Excellent. Excellent. And so, ladies and gentlemen, once again, you are listening to the history segment of Our Seat, Our Table. You just heard from Mike Brown, who is the community historian in DeLand, DeLand, Florida, Springfield, and also very connected with the African American Museum in DeLand. He sits on the board. So for more information on how to better support, how you can learn information of the DeLand African-American community. Their uh, web address is AfricanMuseumDeLand.org. The executive director is Mary Allen. Mike Brown, we want to thank you so much for joining us this week, and we look forward to visiting you in DeLand. Okay, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Speaking with Andrew Brown, you're going to hear from local artists, Vicki Van Hurley, the design doc. Thank you so much for joining us. I am Andrew Brown, a fabric artist, and I have with me Vicki Van Hurley, who is a myriad of things, and I'll let her explain just exactly what she does. Vicki, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on with us this morning. Vicki, talk about, uh, first, talk about you being an artist. How did you get started as an artist? Wow. Well, I go all the way back, and I always quote my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. She told me I was drawing ever since I was able to hold a pencil in my hand. Oh, wow. So that is how far I go back as, as an artist. Um, I love doing figurative studies. And I'm, I'm a dry medium girl. So that means graphite. That mm -hmm. means color pencil, which I've, I've mastered the color pencil to almost many have told me that resembles paint. Mm. Um, and then I've just picked up a new dry medium, which is ballpoint ink pen. Really? Yes. Now, I'm terrible at dry medium. Um, I think the most I'll do is sketch out, and I can barely sketch, but sketch out a look. And you know, as a fabric artist, a designer, I'm I'm translating that into into decorative clothing. So anybody who can pick up a pencil or colored pencil and draw something, I I have all the respect for because I can't do it at all. Oh, thank you. And I I flip on I am on the flip side. I do paint, but it's normally very abstract. 
And I guess okay. that's, be, that's because I was um, a dry medium person and I have that skill. I've been drawing pretty much all my life. And so I have been intrigued by, I think the amount of detail that oil paintings can provide for you, but I don't have the patience. I've never given myself a learning curve for that. So, um, and I just, I also don't really care for messes, mm. but um, I do have a, a love for airbrush and I'm beginning to pick that back up. So that's really my only other, I guess, wet medium that, I'm, that allows me to create work in the same vein. And I think with the same control as um, my dry medium would be airbrush. When, during COVID, when it first started, did you find yourself going back to some art or picking up that colored pencil and, and finishing some things? Absolutely, I, I believe it was, but one of the things I try and do is try and sketch or draw all the time. It, it's mm -hmm. a challenge for me because yes, I do wear other hats, if you will, you mentioned at the top. Um, and so I always like to attempt to just, it, it just clears my mind for, mm -hmm. for other things. I'm able to relax when, if it's not a, an illustration that I will show or, or sell or reproduce, then it just has to be some sort of, of sketching. Um, but yes, I really find it, it was during the COVID lockdown where I found myself wanting to draw more. And that's really where the ink pen came into play. Um, I had picked up some ink pens. I was on an uh, airplane. I was on a, at a conference and I was on my way home. And prior to, I stopped at one of my favorite art stores. I was in Chicago at the time. And so the plane ride, I had nothing to do. I picked up this new little art book and I had some ink pens in my, my bag. So I just started to, to sketch and to draw. And I discovered, oh my goodness, these pens, they blend in a manner mm. similar to color pencil. And so it was during COVID that I just kind of was like, okay, what are we doing? What am I doing here? So I started up an ink pen drawing and it, it turned out pretty well. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to do another one. And the second one turned out, I was very, very, very pleased. As a matter of fact, it is um, in the art show at um, Osceola Arts celebrating women artists for mm -hmm. um, honoring women this month. As a matter of fact, the... Um, the reception, opening reception is Friday. Um, yeah. How'd that opportunity to get in the show come about? Wow. Well, um, I'll go all the way back. Um, Marilyn, who is the, the curator for many of the, of the shows, I became acquainted with her, oh my gosh, probably about five years ago, six years ago, when my sister, she is now um, an administrator with one of the charter schools in um, in Kissimmee. And so she had brought home, she had shared with me this flyer. She said, hey, you might want to think about doing this. And I went, okay, fine. I believe it was like the National Arts. Um, they had a show. And so faculty or, you know, uh, professionals, semi-pros and students could all enter this art show. So I entered a piece. I got in had a great time. And so I had the opportunity, I believe, to do it again the next year. I believe I might have participated maybe three times. Mm -hmm. And throughout that, Marilyn and I has, um, we've created um, a bit of a working friendship, I would like to say, because there was an art show that she also curated, I assisted her with back in maybe 2016, I believe, where mm -hmm. it was celebrating um, Black artists in Central Florida 
And she asked me to help her curate that. And I also had a piece in that show. So it's just been something that's just been reconnecting or we're just kind of trying to reconnect and try and stay abreast of the opportunities that are, that are kind of right here in the neighborhood. Talk about how you transitioned from like arts into a career as an educator. How did that happen? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, well, I had been an, an artist and also I was into uh, or employed as a graphic designer and illustrator because okay. I knew that, wait a minute, I need to be able to make a living because right. that was one of my father's greatest fears. He did not want me to be an artist because all he knew were that artists were starving and he mm -hmm. said, no child of mine is going to do that. So I researched, mm -hmm. I discovered graphic design. And so um, I was able to, to learn how to do the design the branding, the logos, the brochures. And so it was something creative. And I had started right out of undergraduate while I was trying to get that first uh, full-time job. I started out teaching art um, in my, my hometown, originally from Flint, Michigan. And Flint has a wonderful cultural arts center. And so it was the Flint Institute of Arts. And I started teaching the studio classes. I taught drawing to students ages eight to 11 didn't care for it. I'm like, I didn't go to school to be a teacher. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. But hey, it was, it was paying some bills, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, after I got my full-time job, I was like, I'm out of here. I'm done. I did. After a year, I missed it. So apparently, I did not realize that was something with, within me. And so I continued to work full-time. And then I taught part-time in the evenings at the Flint Institute of Arts. And that kind of allowed me to satisfy both because I, I'm a hands-on teacher. I'm that mm -hmm. way at, at, the, at the level, at the higher education level. I'm a hands-on person. And that also, I, I believe I'm training, helping the next generation come up and, and be successful in whether it be branding or art. So it, it's just, that's just how I, how I am. So it really satisfies something that I needed. And so I had an opportunity for, I decided to, I was encouraged heavily by some of those um, people that I had been in contact with. And you might want to think about doing this full time. And I'm like, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? But the opportunity presented itself. And I ended up teaching um, in a commercial graphics design program at Southern Illinois University in Carbonate, Illinois. And it was just pretty much off from there. Um, I started to teach more in graphic design more corporate design. I had the opportunity to branch out with one of my other loves, which is packaging design. Mm -hmm. And then later on, more recently, probably the last maybe five or six years, the light bulb kind of went off and went, wait a minute, all this is branding. Because that, that, that's what I do. And that's also, I believe, what I was taught because there's such a great thing as on-the-job training. And I think that's something that's missing these days. Mm -hmm. um, when I had my first um, full-time position, as a graphic designer illustrator, it was several years ago. So people have the opportunity or the time to teach you. This is how we do things in a professional setting. This is how we do things. So it was kind of going back to everything that I had done was all up under this umbrella of, of branding and marketing. And that's one of the things that I like to also educate specifically entrepreneurs, small business owners, that you really need 
to brand yourself and put yourself forward. I do that as well with um with my own. I'm branded as as an artist. Um, so I just believe that that's kind of how the the transition uh, took place. They're all kind of I believe different areas, but they're they're up under a very common umbrella. Absolutely. And then when did you start? Because I know you are the owner at the Design Doc. When did you start that? Yes, um, the design doc, that's one of my, it's a business, but it's also, I, I do business ads. And I started that um, in uh, 2014. So that's where, um, matter of fact, uh, one of the design teams I was managing um, at a, my last corporate position back in Michigan, one of my designers, he said, you know what? He said, you're the only designer I know that has a PhD. So we should call you the design doc. And mm. it, it stuck. It's stuck. So that's what I'm branded as. That's what I do business as. People know me on social media as, as the design doc. And so pretty much everything that I've just done in my entire career, my entire life, is what I also do as the design doc. Um, mine is the, the art shows. That's that's under me. That's under Vicki Van Hurley. But everything else that I do as far as helping entrepreneurs with branding, being a branding consultant, all that is up under the design doc. Awesome. And your the piece that you have at the art show is at the Osceola Center for the Arts. It's yes, the correct. show. Is that right? Yes, correct. Perfect. Can you tell our listeners how you can be reached if they want to get in contact with you? Where can they do that? All right. Yes. Um, of course, social media. You can find me as an artist at my artist life nine two three on instagram you can also find me as the design doc on instagram and you also can find me online at the design doc number one dot com awesome awesome vicky thank you so much for joining us Creativa, the woman-made art show, is at the Osceola Center for the Arts, and it ends March 26th. There is a free reception tomorrow from 2 to 5 p.m., and they're at 24th East Bronson Memorial Highway, which, of course, we know is 192 in Kissimmee. Vicki, Dr. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us today. I am Andrew Brown, and you're listening to Our Seat, Our Table on WPRK, also available on Spotify and iTunes. And I'll see you guys next week with another Central Florida artist. Fantastic. Once again, listeners, you are listening to Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. It happens every Friday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. We are now on Spotify as well as iTunes. We are easy to find. You can also find us uh, streaming off of WPRK.org, and that is here in Winter Park. Up next, we have our Community Spotlight. Our Community Spotlight is none other than Felicia Benzo, who is also from the Volusia County area in Deltona. Felicia Benzo is the organizer, um, founder, pardon me, of the founder of Catalyst Global Youth Initiative 
Incorporated. Good morning, Felicia, and welcome to our seat and our table. Good morning, Barbara. How are you? I'm well, and thank you so very much for inviting me for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. There's no way we could talk about Volusia County and not have Felicia Benzo here. I noticed that where you were highlighted as um, uh, they had Black History Month and you were one of the selected residents that they highlighted you and your dedication as far as what you're doing in your community. That's right. What an honor. Yes, 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 yes. So Felicia, tell us about Catalyst Global Youth Initiative and how did it come about? Well, I was minding my own business. You want to hear that story? <laughs> <laughs> I know all about it. I know all about it. <laughs> uh, you know, that was not something that I had planned to do, but the divine put it to me to do. And so apparently there were two people that came to my office when I was a practicing financial advisor and they were from Volusia County. One was a principal and one was a retiring superintendent. And they came on a day actually when I was doing my self-improvement and I had closed the whole office building and I was sitting in my office, I had a book and I was writing you know, my goals, my dreams and affirmations, all that stuff was going on. So I was not planning to answer the door. And somebody, mm -hmm. these two women came, they knocked on the door, they they rang the doorbell as though they expected somebody to answer it. And I was just prompted by the spirit to go and answer the door, even though I did not want to. And that's how this all started. And uh, I opened the door and they said, we're looking for Felicia Benzo. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, mm hmm And they said, uh, do you know where she is? So obviously they didn't know who I was, right? So I was tempted to say, I don't know where she is. I take a message and she'll get back to you. <laughs> uh, so I sort of felt guilty about that. And I said, I'm Felicia Benzo. And they said, oh, great. We're looking for you. So I brought them in and we were talking at a conference table and they told me what they needed were mentors for the children and this particular school, they weren't talking about the rest of the county, just this particular school, it's in Deltona, it's a new elementary school. So I said, well, how many mentors do you need? They said, um, six, and I knew that wasn't right. So I said, how many do you need to be effective? And they said, 40. Wow, wow, well, from six to 40. Six to 40 to be effective. Six is just not going to do it. And I was just shocked by it. And I really was taken aback by it. I had no clue of the circumstances of the children of Volusia County. I just sat back and I said, well, you, you just can't bring 40 people into your school and not have a program. There's something, it has to be organized. They have to be oriented. And I went on and on because I know that mentoring is, is a very important part of a child's life. And, and always so has been, on, always has been. It has always been. You're absolutely right. That is why it's such an old tool, but a very effective tool and in raising children uh, to the challenges of their own lives and to merging into adulthood. Correct. And uh, looking at uh, them, I said, look, I'll come up with something. I'll get back to you. So. Doing that, I found out that 76% of our children are coming from single female households. 
mm-hmm. not the way of saying they're, they're poor. And that 86% of our schools are Title I schools. Right, right, so right. That is so another, relative. That is another way of saying there's poverty. And ultimately, when you look at the stats for or the census for Volusia County, you're going to see a lot of people are under the poverty line or pretty close to it. And whichever it is, it's not enough money to live the lives that they need to. And so the children suffer from lack of resources, and that is the challenge for our schools and for them. Wow. Felicia, what are some of the strides or or incremental progress that your organization, that you've seen with your organization within the students, within the schools? Well, we're 11 years old now. And we have seen... Thank you. That is a struggle right there. But in 11 years, and it takes nine years for our children to circle out of mentoring into graduation from high school and and beyond. So we can see, or I can see, that long-term mentoring is extremely effective. And we usually start our children with our children in third grade, and we mentor them all the way through graduation. Those children that stay with mentoring all have graduated. All working. They're working, they're in the military, or they're in college now. And I can see how they have benefited from the wind beneath their wings called mentors. Wow. Wow. And we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your foresight in knowing how to construct and organize a program that would meet the needs of not just the student, but the families. Because we realize when these mentoring programs come into play um, from the ground, if they are organized by someone who understands the family dynamics and what it takes to really shift and pivot, we do see the success that you, you've been able to do in your own community. Absolutely. And when parents buy into it and realize that the mentors are not trying to take their place, but they are trying to add that element into the child's life that moves them forward uh, and also act like an intervention, Mm -hmm. you know, because you don't have resources does not mean you're less valuable than anybody else. And that's one of the things we have to overcome with these young people. They feel, uh, and the school is a part of it, that you know they don't have the resources they don't wear the sneakers they are an ieps whatever labeling is going on with these little people instead Mm -hmm. of seeing them as human beings and working with them with their social emotional intelligence and learning to develop a productive confident human being wow wow right and and that is what the mentor, or let me say, this is what Catalyst does. Catalyst focuses on the social, emotional intelligence of these little human beings and then work with them to understand their values. So one of the things you would hear from all of our children is what I want from them, and that is greatness. So when I go to meet them and introduce them to their mentors, I said, so now, what does Miss Felicia want from you? And they look at me with these bright eyes and they say, you want me to learn? No. You want me to behave? No. 
You want me to do good in school? Yes, I do, but that's not what I want. And then, well, then what do you want, Miss Felicia? I want greatness. And they no. smile. They know some, something about that connects with them. Mm -hmm. And so even if I put it on Facebook, what does Miss Felicia want from you? Those who are on Facebook will say greatness, greatness, greatness. <laughs> Bottom line. And they're ready Bottom to achieve line. it. And they're ready to achieve it. Felicia, exactly. how does someone get in touch with your organization who would like to volunteer or who would like to support Catalyst Foundation? Well, we have a website that says Mentoring for Greatness, or they can call me directly at 386-216-4289. That is 386-216-4289. That's my direct cell. My name is Felicia Benzo. Or you can send me an email at seed, the little seed that you put in the ground, S-E-E-D, principles, P-R-I, and C-I-P-L-E-S at gmail.com. All are welcome. And the other thing I want to emphasize, we serve all Volusia County. Our children are just as diverse as our mentors. They're black, white, Hispanic, uh, just like the mentors. We come from all backgrounds. We have all kinds of political beliefs, but our focus is on building these children and helping them on their road to greatness. Wow. Wow. Well, we want to thank you, Dr. Felicia Benzo, our Black History Month honoree in the city of Volusia County. Once Hello. again, Felicia, yes. Anything thank else you, you wanted to share? It takes all of us to make this happen for these children. Yes, all it does. Accomplished. I mean, you, you hear it from people like Soda Mayer. Uh, you hear from one of the CEOs of uh, Career Source, who spent most of her life in foster care, that it took a mentor, an adult, not a child, a mentor to make them change and move in the direction of success. Change so I encourage everybody, wherever they are, to step it up and mentor a child. Excellent. We want to thank you again, Dr. Felicia Benzo. We want to thank you for all the work that you are doing in Volusia County and continue to do greatness. You are listening. And I want to thank you, Ms. Chandler, for all that you do in spreading the news. Thank you. Thank you, Felicia. Once again, we are listening to our seat, our table, the Leadership Lounge. Up next, we have LaVonda Wilder the Eatonville Chamber of Commerce. LaVonda is going to be speaking with brothers John and Albert Richards with Posh Tennis Foundation. Good morning, LaVonda. Good morning, Barbara. Thanks for creating this platform and I'm happy to be here this morning. I will be speaking with John and Albert Richards today and they are with Posh Rock Tennis Foundation. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, great. I have both of you. This is awesome. Now, I did a little research last night and found that we have two brothers that have the only special Olympics tennis clinic in Orlando. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to light? 
So we started a few years ago uh, with a girl that lives in, she lives in Sanford, uh, Lake Mary area, and she is the number one Special Olympics uh, tennis athlete in the United States of America for females. Actually, she's number one in Florida for anybody, male or female, and she's number one in the country as far as tennis is concerned. She won the area games. She Then she went on to win the Florida games. And she went on in the US games and we took her to about a year and a half ago. She participated in the World Special Olympic Games in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and she lost in the gold medal round to a girl from Australia. So technically she's number two in the world. Um, so we with everything um, and my brother is fantastic about this so with everything that we do. We try to make sure that we're doing it to the fullest and making sure that we're being as uh, entrepreneurial as possible. So we we then decided to take over the Special Olympics Florida Orange County program. Um, we started with uh, seven registered tennis athletes. Now we're up to 50. We also uh, do tennis for the um, Academy for Autism mm -hmm. here, in, here uh, in Central Florida, where we have another 30 athletes that come every Friday. So you know we've been we've been doing this for quite some time tennis wise with different underrepresented groups so we we try as hard as we can to whenever we reintroduce the game of tennis to to try to do it to the fullest and my brother's excellent at making sure that we do that and i know that your organization was founded in 2017 and your mission is to uh change it to bring it, yeah and bring inclusive uh, make it inclusive for all individuals but what I want to know is since you started in 2017, how has the market changed for you? Do you see more black and brown kids participating or is it about the same? You mean specifically in our area or just in general? Yes, it, it, with your organization, because I know you're working with the elementary school system. So I know that you're meeting different kids. Are we interested in the sport of tennis or do you think the interest increased with the, with the Venuses of the world and Serena's? Yes, uh, I, absolutely. The, Venus and Serena have their own effect for everybody. I mean, they're about our age. So, I mean, you know, we saw them growing up you know it, they, they obviously had an impact on specifically young black girls but i mean young black everybody is proud of young everybody really was proud of them coming up especially the way they came up as far as locally and in our programming yeah i mean we started out <laughs> john and i could you know tell you that we started out doing our programs on um, six week programs just we bought our own equipment and we would just go around to the boys and girls clubs and um to the OTC and to these different places to do all of the six week programs. And we always had kids interested and we always had kids uh, willing to come back. Even at the, we, we started the program at the Frontline Outreach Center, that's right there on uh, CB, CB Smith. And even in there, they, I mean, the kids loved the program so much so that they became their own um, little tennis entity, you know, before we stepped out, we set them up. And then we stepped up, but in our programming in the schools and in all the underserved communities that we do hit, yeah, I mean, once the tennis gets introduced, I mean, it's not introduced in a way that we're telling them you got to train to become this or that. They just like being out, like learning something new and appreciate the fact that, you know, it's just something that they can do. It's fun that they, they, their friends are doing it and it's outdoors and, you know, it's one more feather in their cap. Okay, I get it. Yes. 
And sometimes it's just nice to have someone that looks like us and it, it can encourage us to participate where normally we wouldn't be interested in it. Absolutely. And I know that it takes a village to make a program work also. Who are some of your community partners that help you spread and support your organization's goal of increasing the participation of our underserved youth in the game of tennis? You know, that's the part that we're trying to grow the most. Uh, right now, OCPS is helping us out a lot because, you know, they, they allowed us to come into the schools and touch the kids that um, with tennis that we needed to. Uh, the United States Tennis Association's Florida Division and their National Division have both been very helpful, extremely helpful in helping us uh, develop our grassroots program with funding, which is always makes things easier. Um, we, for a time, had a bank, Iberia Bank, which helped us, and, and Emmy Nutrition. They help us. We, we run programs with them, which is another 501 that's local. They're a nutrition company. So, you know, they, they help us get the kids healthy, uh, you know, teach them be better health habits and stuff like that. So, what are the community partners, uh, John? Can you remember anymore that I'm missing? Orlando Health Foundation. Yeah. Um, they're, they're very integral in helping us and guiding us in the right direction. We do a lot with the Orange County Parks and Rec programs. Um, they, they, yeah. we, we do a lot with them, like my brother said, uh, the OCPS, different schools. Um, but uh, we're, we are as we are looking for as many partners as, as we can. <laughs> yeah, we can never have enough, uh, never enough partners in this situation. As you said previously, it takes a village to raise a child. I mean, this this isn't about necessarily us or putting us on the map. It's more about how many lives can we change and how, how many kids can we get uh, to college scholarships and, and who otherwise wouldn't been able to, would not have been able to get to college. So that's kind of our goal because again, we were these kids. So it's our responsibility to kind of reach back and help the next generation to, to get an education or to go for the use tennis as a vehicle to get further in life. And that's kind of our goal. Okay, do you have anything last that you would like to like our listeners to know about you or your organization and also please include your contact information? Sure. I mean, just like my brother just said, we we are looking for partners, so people to partner in the majority of aspects because as a what we are wearing part of the a network, uh, a nationwide network of called a system called NJTL, National Junior uh, Tennis and Learning. Uh, uh, foundation that was started by Arthur Ash and Charlie Passarell. And uh, in that, that in that uh, organization, in that those types of organizations, we not only promote our tennis, but like my brother said, education and stuff like that, so that we the kids can make better, healthy living choices. So, any organizations that want to partner with us or feel like we're in a lane that they can get into, um, they can always give us a call at. Uh, my number is um, I'm Albert four zero seven two four two seven zero four six, or they can email us at Albert at poshrocktennis.com. I appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today, and and I did not say it, but John is the vice president of the organization, and Albert is the president and chairman of the organization. So please reach out to them and help their organization grow as much as possible. Even if you just come in and volunteer, all of yeah. your nonprofit organizations benefit from the people 
actually believing in the mission and coming out and supporting the programs as best you can. Thanks, everyone. Have an amazing day. Thank, Thank you, guys, for having us. Thank you for your Bye -bye. time, guys. Wow, thank you so much, LaVonda, for that amazing interview. Shameless plug, the Richards are from the Virgin Islands, and so am I. So I am extremely proud when we can uh, just give a shout out to, to the islands and know that we are meeting communities, uh, connecting communities, and the people who are doing great things. I just want to thank all of our guests today. Mike Brown, Mary Alling from the African American Museum in Delan, Felicia, Dr. Felicia Benzo with Catalyst Youth Initiative, Catalyst Global Youth Initiative Incorporated, and then also Vicki Van Hurley, who is an artist as well, a local artist, the doc design. And then we also want to thank John and Albert Richards with Posh Rock tennis foundation and all the work that they continue to do in our local community and bring in programming. I think one of the connectedness we can see uh, with our seat, our table is relatable programming, meeting the community needs exactly where they are. I do realize that this is Women's History Month. I do want to take a time, take time in which to acknowledge that. I was brushing up on where did Women's History Month come from? And it's almost the same story as African-American History Month, Black History Month, in where it started off as one week and then it went into one month. I want to think it was President Jimmy Carter who signed off on it in order for it to become that. So some of the program that you will see in the month of March will be around History Month. Again, we are so thankful to our partner with Rollins College, WPRK, and their staff. We also have at the end of the program where we have a call to action. So this, as Women's History Month, a lot of times we think that in order to be acknowledged or to be recognized that you have to do something big, you have to do something great, when meanwhile you are doing something great and you are doing something big right where you are. I always remember the candy lady in any neighborhood that I lived in. The candy lady is really, she was a really essential part of our community. For a lot of us, that is where we learned economics. That's where we saw economics happening in our community. So my charge to any and everyone who's listening as the call for action from our seat, our table, is to find that woman in your community who is making a difference. I don't care if she is the crossing guard, she is making a difference. I don't care if she is the woman in church who makes you spit out the gum in that tissue, she is making a difference. And these are the stories that continues to shape and mold us. This is where the, the community connectiveness, this is where it, it, uh, it takes a village. These are the things in which each village member does. So I wanna leave you with one last quote here. And that quote is, every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the slowest gazelle or it will starve. It doesn't matter whether you're the lion or the gazelle. When the sun comes up, you'd better be running.
Thank you for listening. Once again, you're listening to Our Seat, Our Table, The Leadership Lounge. We are here every Friday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. You can hear us on Spotify. You can hear us on iTunes. You can hear us on WPRK. We are asking that you hear us. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week.